Ann Donahue, you know her from Twitter, at Ann Donahue. Uh, Flair calls her the internet's best friend, but she's also written for MTV, Cosmopolitan, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail. Uh, it goes at Sportsnet, Nylon, Paper Magazine, pretty much anywhere that you can read words. She's written for them. Her latest project is a book called Nobody Cares, a collection of essays about, as the press release says, work, failure, friendship, and the messy business of being alive in your 20s and 30s. And T. Donahue and Teresa Donahue. Oh, nice to it's meet out you. there. I like to tell people my it's middle name is book. Toast. Yes, it is. So <laughs> oh, there goes my mythos. It's all over now for me. I told people for years that my middle name was Ezekiel because I thought it was funny. And it, like 20, 30 years ago, I was telling people that. And then I kind of forgot about it. And I bumped into someone recently who remembered it. And they said, you know, I've always wanted to ask you, where did the middle name Ezekiel come from? Is it a family name? Of course, it's not my middle name. I had no idea what they were talking about. And they had to remind me that that's what I told everyone my middle name. I would have played it up and been like, I don't want to talk about the death of my (laughs) uncle Ezekiel. That is upsetting. It's very personal. It's a very personal thing. And then make them buy you like a meal. See? See? Listen, stick with me. This is the difference between us. Uh, The book is called Nobody Cares. And and I told you just before we flipped on the microphones that I read it in one day, two sittings. Uh, It's fantastic stuff. It is something that uh, will get... Um, it it becomes more compelling the more that you read because I wanted to learn more. I have met you once before. I know you from Twitter a little bit. I retweet things. I'm always very flattered when you do. But uh, but the book is different than than what happens on social media for you. Now, of course, you write for lots of different people. So some of these essays have appeared in one form or another sort of uh, other places. But I have to start by talking about the introduction to the book because we have just come through the Toronto International Film Festival. And, you know, the kind of self-importance is still hanging in the air thick <laughs> over Toronto. And the 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 introduction to the book really grabbed me and pushed me into the the rest of the book so much because it essentially says, you know, you're not that important. Yeah, like nothing matters. I mean, it does. Obviously, like everybody listening, you personally do matter, especially to your (laughs) loved ones. You matter a lot. But I remember um, that whole like not important thing really came to fruition during my uncle's um, visitation where my cousin and I were sitting there and we're tired because visitations are awful. And we're not emotional people. So we're just kind of sitting there making fun of everybody. And there's this guy that comes in in this old vintage military jacket, white dude with like the longest dreadlocks of life. And my cousin and I are just like, who the hell is that? Like. He thinks he's important. He's not important. He thinks he's important. And then that became this like little seedling where it's like, you're not important. So now if you actually look at my wall to wall with my cousin, it's just us telling each other how unimportant we are. Well, the the thing that I like about that story is it feels like uh, the germ of something that is very small. It just came from someone that you saw in a, a little conversation. But a lot of these essays are so personal, but they seem to come from things that maybe a lot of us wouldn't have thought about again, but then lead to deeper insight about where you are in the world, you know, what it's like to, what what is it, work failure, friendship, and the messy business of being alive <laughs> in your 20s and 30s. But they all start from small things. Yeah, I think most of us are big experiences. Like all of us are living our own lives subjectively. Everything is very insular. And then we kind of assume that no one else is going through the same things that we're going through because our experiences, again, are very personal. Mm -hmm. But then when you actually lay it out on the table and you're like, yes, 
this is where this came from, this little seedling, and this is this guy's little seedling, it does blow up into like, oh, we all talk about in, like death and we all feel anxious or we all feel like imposters or we're all looking at everyone being like, oh, they have it together. They have no idea. I've had like instant coffee made with like cold milk this morning. <laughs> it's just we're all – and in, as soon as you kind of realize that like no one's even really looking at you and they're, they're not studying you the way you think, like it's such a relief. It's mm-hmm. a very – I mean I think that comes also – with age and hitting bottom a couple of times. Well, and this is something that you talk about in the book a great mm-hmm. deal. And we'll, we'll sort of walk our way through that a, a little bit. But um, it, it, it is truthful, I think, what you've just said here, that that we perhaps do take ourselves a little bit too seriously. And, and the book uh, chips away at that in almost every essay. Well, that's, I mean, super. I'm glad I've paid you to say all these nice things. <laughs> I'm super excited about that. So you got the deposit. This yes. is great. Um, it all came in Starbucks cards, though. I can't I, help who I am. It's my currency. <laughs> I forgot to pick up Madeline's on the way here, and I, I feel lost inside. I feel like a lot of it's also pep-talking myself, because mm-hmm. as much as like you might read this and be like, wow, she, she has it figured out. Yeah. Hell no. And it's a lot of where these essays came from because they kind of, they came originally from this newsletter I do every week yeah. and that's where ECW approached me and those newsletters I wrote basically as pep talks to myself um, often being like you know get your head in the game stop thinking only like stop being so selfish like kind of harsh talk sometimes and that's where this book kind of comes into play where writing these was as much writing it for everybody else as it was for myself to remind myself that no one like stop it nobody cares like it's nice like even this it's like it's nice i have a book out this is so exciting but the world is spinning outside of this room <laughs> and there's other things going on you might even in your head right now be like i have to go to the dentist after this i ha- oh god all right i always have a bad reaction to novocaine like <laughs> we're all in our own narratives which is a very liberating feeling of being like it's fine it's fine and even big disasters eventually they're less large, as we can glean from the American government right now. Yeah, as Donald <laughs> Trump's tweet. As I start uh, sobbing here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Auntie Donahue. The book is called Nobody Cares. It's in bookstores and online where you buy fine books and all that stuff everywhere this weekend. So you'll be able to, to find it and pick it up. Um, a lot of the uh, stuff that is in here you you said comes from this newsletter. Now you originally did another newsletter, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't go so well, and you 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 put it aside. And the thing that I love in in one of the essays here, you talk about how when you started writing realistically, people went, "Oh yeah, now I want to read this." Yeah. When you stop, when you drop their persona. Yes, and I think also, and maybe. I don't know if you share this as a writer, but sometimes when you're sitting down to write something, you're like, well, I'm, this is amazing. I'm writing amazing things. This is like (laughs) prose for the history books. This is incredible. And when you come at anything from that trajectory, I think you set yourself up for failure because Mm -hmm. you can just, the ego is dripping off of the page. And it's also never that good when you read back. You're like, oh my God, this is terrible. So I think for me, that first newsletter, it was literally a roundup of here's what I'm doing. Da, 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 da. And who can, like why? It's like curating your life. Yes, right? yeah. and also like why would anyone want that? Like mm-hmm. why? I mean, I mean, I like to think of myself as very important in my own life because <laughs> I'm incredibly narcissistic. But <laughs> I, who would want a roundup of like, and here's what I'm doing this week, and that's it. Goodbye. Have a nice one. So when it kind of turned into this one place that wasn't governed by like editors or mm-hmm. a mandate of a publication because it's you know you don't just stray from somebody else's mandate. Right. Then it became. This very like this honesty cove 
where <laughs> it all of a sudden began resonating. And I was super flattered and thought it might be fleeting. And still to this day, I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out soon that they everybody can just do this. That's the imposter syndrome. Oh, though. it's never but, gone away. But well, and, and you know what? It, it I, I for me anyway, it hasn't either. It never goes away. But for on my end of things, I didn't start to to find any level of success until I let go of a lot of stuff. Right. I got my first radio gig when I was quite young. I was about sixteen. I sounded oh. like this, but I was sixteen years old, and it was in a small radio station. In, in near my hometown, but all the guys that were working there, and it was all men back in those days, uh, they were uh, guys who had done the circuit. Like that's how you worked in radio. Then you started in small markets and you worked up and, and eventually into medium markets. Then then you hit the big show, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, somewhere like that. But uh, these guys had been around, but they were very studied in the way that they were. And I thought I had to be that way. And the greatest lesson that I ever got in radio that has stayed with me through everything, uh, up into and including Pop Life, my new TV show, is that the first meeting I had with my program director, he said, so how do you think it's going? Which I now know is not something you really want to hear in a meeting. That's uh, like right before they tell you, because we think it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so that's essentially what he said. I said, well, I think it's going great. I've learned everything there is to know about the Rolling Stones and the whoever else I was playing. And I was just spewing facts and figures. Did you know that the Rolling Stones have had five number one hit singles and here's the late, you know, whatever it was. The DJ voice. Yeah. And so... I, I did all that, and he said, you know what? People don't care about that. People just want to hear about people. And that's the literally the words that kind of changed my life. It took me a long time to figure that out, but those words changed everything for me. I think honestly remembering that everyone is – and I'm not saying go out and hug a Nazi or anything like that. I'm just saying that like remembering that like everyone – I'm looking at the studio. Everyone here is a person. Mm-hmm. They all have a life. They're all trying their best. Most people are trying their best for yep. the most part. And that is – a very humbling factor because they're looking at you and they're like, it's just, it's okay. It's just a person, but it's so isolating to be alive sometimes. (laughs) It's really, cause if you get too in your like, Oh my God, what if, or like you compare yourself like that. And I mean, social media is Mm -hmm. a big, um, big fan of that. It's a devil. It is a bit of a devil. I love it, but it's also like you start looking at someone's Instagram account. Well, they, well, how do they look so good? And I don't, I'm the same age. I don't look that great or I'm not married and they're married. Like what? And then, it's as when you connect through the people aspect of it, I think it makes being alive feel a lot less daunting because at the end of the day, we're just we're literally just trudging through barreling towards death, trying <laughs> not to hit anybody in our path, which sounds so morose. But it's actually quite like every time I think of it, I'm like, oh, that's a nice thought. Yeah, <laughs> we're all just trying. Watch people get caught in a rainstorm. Very camaraderie in those moments, too. Well, there's there's been a number of films uh, at the Toronto International Film Festival this year that have been exactly about that. There's one called Hotel Mumbai, which was Ooh. about the this terrible real-life terrorist attack that happened in 2008. Uh, and the, the whole point of the story is when given adversity, the, the people will rise to the occasion. Yes, I think so, too. Um, and I think it's so easy... To, I mean, this is getting so heavy, but it's like I think it's so easy to write everything off, especially right now in the climate that we're in. It's very difficult and very upsetting if you lean towards certain political slants yep. like I do. And I think it's very easy to lose hope and to be like, well, everything's bad, but it's not. And you start and the, you do start to see things like, well, that was a nice gesture that mm-hmm. happened or they like it's not it's it, it can be salvaged. And that sometimes is all you need to keep going. 
When we come back, we continue the conversation with Ann T. Donahue. The book is called Nobody Cares. It's in bookstores and online right now. Stay with us. My guest in studio is Ann T. Donahue. Follow her at Ann T. Donahue on Twitter. Uh, be amused. Be, be brought into her world. Be shocked at how often I use caps lock. And it's like, she really that excited about oranges? Or draw pictures. Those that, the, the, the stick figure guys. Yeah. To announce what I'm up to. Like, yeah. I'm eating fish and chips for dinner. Or I'm wearing a scarf. I'm wearing a I did wear, I wore a scarf the other day and mm. it felt amazing. It is too warm today. It is. So I'm quite salty about that. I know. No, I like, uh. I, I love fall, like oh. September, late September, early October is my time. Yes, likewise. I'll even take November. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take November. Give me yeah. November, I'll take December, and then as soon as New Year's happens, I will just go right into my seasonal depression <laughs> and be like, everything is bad. And then I hate the spring. I think I just should move to Ireland one day where it's just yep. always cold Yeah, and, and a little rainy, a little, a little rainy. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I can't be in the sun anyways. This is perfect. <laughs> I need SPF 50 every 15. <laughs> We're learning a lot about me today on the radio. We well, the book is called Nobody Cares. Uh, you can learn more about Ann T. Donahue. Uh, now, why the T? It's, it's, you say in the book it's because there's another Ann Donahue. Yes, right? right. I wish it was like a really great story. Um, it is not. Actually, there's a creator of CSI named Ann Donahue. Right. That's what it is. She doesn't have the E, but I get enough at replies asking if they can send, people can send me their screenplays. They're like, can I send you my my pilot for this? I'm like, I didn't invent CSI. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'd be wearing a much more expensive denim jacket right now if I had. Um, and then there's, I believe there was a writer for Billboard. There are a couple Ann Donahue right. writers. And then if you Google, there's a random murder that's like... Although I only found that after. I wish I could be like, I added the T because of the murder, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, but yeah, I was also when I wanted to do, I wanted to be, I quit acting as we saw in there. Mm. But that was when my that agent at the time was like, you need to add a T because there's already an Ann Donahue. And then I just kept it and right. then thought, well, I'll be like Paul F. Tompkins. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, you talk a great deal about failure in this book. I'm not, I'm not even sure it's failure. It's about quitting things. You are unafraid to say, you know what? Enough. I'm out of here. If I hate something, I am gone. I am not doing this. That's why I don't go to parties yeah. most of the time, unless I know everybody. Yeah. But I... I... And even then, I'm, I'm like you, even then, it's, it can be rough to get me out to things. Yeah. Considering that you're a public person and people hear me on the radio and think, oh, you sound so friendly. <laughs> Honestly, I don't enjoy groups. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a joiner. I'm so, ch I'm not a joiner at all. I've been listening to uh, the Inside Nexium podcast and it's like, you know, that was a cult based on like everybody joining in and groups. Right. And I'm like, this is my hell. Like I can't even imagine being around that many people being like, believe in yourself. No, I don't want to. I'm going to watch more escape to the country and be angry alone in my house. Uh, I love quit. I love not doing things I don't want to do. And I don't mean like, I mean, I have to pay my bills and yep. I have to hand in things and I have to show up to places. Yep. But when it comes to like, well, I have a Friday night. I'd rather have dinner with my best friends then like stand in a room and refuse the canapes because there's dairy in them. You know what I mean? Also, we we're, we have a bit of an issue though with what? your hatred of cheese. I do and hate I cheese, and we we can talk about that I, I at mean, another should. time at length because I am a cheeseaholic you and I look like I enjoy. You cheese. look great. Thank you. But don't for one minute put yourself down here in my presence. <laughs> I hate cheese, and I always have. Even when I could eat dairy, it's 
awful unless it's marble and it's grated so thinly you can barely taste it. I know. Let's get everyone get, call in and get mad at me, everyone. Especially the cheese bureau. Yeah, yeah, the dairy farmers They're just of like, Ontario. That's it. I already knew she was lactose free. This is nonsense. <laughs> this guy in the sound booth is like he just staged a coup. I he know. threw something at the glass. No, I'm know. just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But, but it's it, reenacted it, dramatic. It scene. wouldn't be the first time. But but the so this book covers everything from your dislike of cheese, especially that, to, especially that that is highlighted. But also uh, some other sort of darker periods here as mm-hmm. well, which are written about with such honesty that I think that it's important for people uh, who may be in a similar situation to to um, have that kind of unmasked for them. You move to Toronto with aspirations of, of becoming a famous writer. And, and, yeah, and, 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 it, and it didn't work out for you in the moment that, that you were here, uh, even though books are coming out now and that sort of thing. But when you were here, you were in your 20s, and it, and it didn't work out for you, and you drank a lot, you were out a lot. I mean, maybe I think your, your hatred of being out comes from oh, being out I'm a lot. I'm sure it does. I think so. I, I mean, I was an unmedicated alcoholic. Like, that was not, you know, that's a recipe for disaster right there. Like I need to be in mood stabilizers for the rest of my life. I was not on those, not knowing that there was a problem with that. And I talk about that in the book too. But that is one of those, like, yeah, I think if you're going to tell those stories, you have to tell them honestly, Mm -hmm. because otherwise they're not going to have value. And also what's the worst that can happen? Is somebody going to say like, Hey, you suffer from bipolar too, and you're an alcoholic. Yeah. Like, I already know that. The doctor told me those things. How's it going? Like, <laughs> what are you going to tell everyone else? It's already in the book. <laughs> but I remember when I first, and I this is in there too, but I remember when I first got diagnosed, it seemed so scary and forever. And you're like, this, like I'm not going to live a normal life. Oh, my God, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Because your brain goes into hyperdrive. And also we don't, we talk about normalizing mental health conversations, but we don't. We do it like a day on the internet. That's not normal. Normal is coming out and being like, Sorry, guys, I was in the bell jar. Has everybody, like, yeah. like conversations. Well, and you were also, you, in the book, you talk about uh, some incidents that happened, that would happen regularly. Your mother had the radio too loud. I can't remember. Yeah. And, and you would go into a, a, a crying fit that you couldn't pull yourself out of. Yes, I'm very glamorous. Um, <laughs> it, and, or just not, the, like, not seeing the light, like, not even, God, you, know, you don't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't feel like you're in a tunnel. You just mm-hmm. feel like you're in this, like, eternal abyss. Um, or the anxiety or how anxiety is, isn't just like butterflies before an interview. It can be like, I don't know how I'm going to get to that place. I don't know how I'm going to get to the interview. Um, and then as soon as I, for myself found that I was able to like start talking about it in a really honest way, it became less of the bold type of like, of my story and more like a footnote. Right. Cause you're like, Oh, I've made it normal. And I think like that's why I want it. I don't know. I, th- I think that's why I want, writing about it honestly meant so much because um, I, I would have hated to have somebody read it and be like, oh, I know the true story. And she just really made it seem glamorous. And that's not how it was at all. Cause it wasn't, it's not hot being in your like old Victorian apartment with no heat, eating ravioli cold <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like crying because you've taken too much cold medicine to sleep. That's right. not drinking wine. Out not of the great. Bottle. And it's like, the bad kind of wine. Like it's not like, <laughs> and I had a wonderful Cabernet. Like it's like, I bought this for six bucks. Uh, I, it tastes awful, but I'll take Neo Citron with it too. Like just terrible decisions. Um, and that's also real life. Real life is I hate cheese and real life is also, you know, 
been in the bell jar more than a couple of times. And now I can talk about it in a way that doesn't make me feel like that's what I'm going to be defined by. The book is called Nobody Cares. The author is Auntie Donahue. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about uh, the book. And I want to talk a little bit about sort of crawling out of that hole and finding yourself where you are today. Stay Love with it. us. The book is called Nobody Cares. My guest is Auntie Donahue. You know her from the internet. Flair calls her the internet's best friend. You can follow her on Twitter at Auntie Donahue. There's, pro- I mean, you must have a myriad of social media accounts, yes? I have Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then I changed my Facebook to be more private because, um, I mean, let me have something, people. <laughs> I act like I'm in demand, like eight people trying to add me, and I, I knew them from high school. I'm like, no, I don't know you anymore. But <laughs> so those are my two. <laughs> and this is a collection of essays uh, that that detail various uh, sections of your life, sort of like uh, you know microscope uh, microscope slides of your life that we're we're having a look at. And we've just been talking about when you moved to Toronto and things didn't go quite the way you thought they were going to go and you kind of fell into a hole a little bit of drinking and self-medication and all that kind of thing, which you were then able to crawl out of. Yay. Yay. So Mm. tell me a little bit about that and, and, you know, what it meant to you, like how, how much of a difference it made in your life? Uh, To crawl out of? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean... Because it's hard. Oh, God. And, and you write about that in the book. The first year was rough. And I remember you saying, I counted down the days to my first anniversary because then there's a thing. You like, I go, did it. It's a year. I've, I've done made it. it. Yeah. I remember I had two friends over and we were like, yeah, like this is happening. And then probably within that month, I was like, I got two flus back to back because I was basically just eating bread. That's all <laughs> I could afford. And I couldn't put heat on. And I'm very close with my mom and dad. So... Um, I was very, very lucky that I could tell my mom, like, I think I'm screwed. Like, I something's wrong. And I went home when I was sick, and I was like, I don't know what to do. And she and my dad were like, just move home. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, the, we can't pay your rent for you. Like, we don't have the money to do that. Yeah. But you can stay here and work your debts off. And I remember at the time being like, well, that's – horrible like what (laughs) i should go back in time and slap young me for waiting so long and then over that year of moving back there was a relief that comes with it where you're like oh i can afford to get a coffee if i want to um but it was also that open communication with my mom and dad and being like i still don't feel you know stable mood wise i think i'm gonna book a doctor's appointment and then being like absolutely like we got your back that's great that made the difference. Of- because in Toronto, perhaps your friends would have been, oh, let's just go out and have a drink instead. Or Well, yeah. Know. There was like, you know what? There was almost like the two groups. Like there's the groups that you hang out with because you're out and you're fun and whatever. But then I did have that core best friend gang that would have 100% been like, whatever you need. But I didn't want to let my guard down. So I just never let on. And then after the fact, when I went back and told them everything, they were like, we... We would have, like, we're not going to, I don't, some of them were like, we don't even want to drink. Like, what is, like, oh, my God. And then you're like, I was projecting onto these people that were basically like my family. Because there's all these complicated feelings that come with hitting bottom. Mm -hmm. And then you want to put all of your baggage on other people and blame them a little bit. And then you can't. So you have to apologize. You do your apology tour. Well, that's that's it, right? Mm -hmm. There are steps to this. Oh, yeah. And you hear about them. and, And, you know. 
I've had a number of friends who have, have gone through this kind of, uh, of situation and the apology tour is a very difficult one. It it's can a be difficult weird. step. Yeah. And I was very lucky in that I was greeted with nothing but support and, oh my God, of course it had like this happens and like, yeah. you've been here for me through this and blah, 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 which is, um, I think after writing this, I realized though, this is all very privileged. Like I, a lot of people don't have families that are going to support them. Right. A lot of people don't have friend groups that are going to support them. A lot of people don't have places to go when they don't ha- when they can't pay rent anymore. And I think we're seeing this, especially now with like the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. getting bigger and bigger. Absolutely, and that's becoming a massive like headline, despite it not becoming a headline. It's like that from this position of privilege that I've been given, if I can normalize conversations about addiction and mental health in some way in my own way that like maybe this will do that like because I think there is also there is the the fear of stigma which makes you don't want to talk about things and then you eventually don't care about the stigma and it's a badge of honor where you're like whatever I did it what are you going to do what kind of response do you get when you write about it uh in the pages of flare or paper wherever it is that you're writing what kind of response do you get from people well when i first when i remember within like the first two years of being diagnosed i went very like, I am the universal truth for this. Like, I, my experience is the only one. And I was very lucky. I never attempted or suicide or wanted to do that. I always, ha- like, the difference between, for our listeners, the difference between bipolar one and two is, like, I am two. So you're a little, it's soft, right? So you're not, you've got ceilings to your highs and you've got right. bottoms to your lows. Whereas the other can go very it can yeah. go a different way. Limitless e- on yes. either end. Right. And so that in itself is like, that. I'm not, I'm not the rule. I'm the exception. But I was preaching like I was the rule, and I wrote a thing, um, and I, and it was, I got called out by a lot of readers who were like, "This is not like, this is not true." It was like a criticism of like Homeland or something. I'd forget. It was years ago, and then like learning how to like, you just have to like you your experience is not the experience, and learning that has made me write about it in an honest way. And that has welcomed people who have been very supportive. And now I don't get people yelling at me or telling me. I mean, I get people yelling at me about other things. But (laughs) when it comes to, you know, mental health or addiction, it's not the, you know, you're projecting yours onto us. It's mostly like, thank you for sharing. Because I think if you come at it from, this was my experience, you can't, what are you people going to get mad at that? It's my experience. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Because what I found, I I had cancer a number of years ago and I wrote about it and I didn't write about it until after it was over. I didn't tell anybody except a very close circle of people that needed to know, uh, you know, obviously family. I didn't even tell my father because he was lived a long ways away and I didn't want him to be sitting there concerned. Uh, But after it was over, I wrote about it. And it was very clear to me that my experience was singular from after talking to people about it, because there are as many experiences as there are people to experience them in this sort of situation. Yes. Yes. And I think it's like when you're in it and I did not wait enough time to really, and I understand that now, but when you're in it, you're like, well, this is it. Like, this is how it is. And it's like, well, this is how it is for you. It's not how it is for everyone else. And it's unfair to say that it is for everyone else or to offer solutions that you don't know anything about. That'd be like, it's, you know, I, as an alcoholic, I can't talk about what it's like to be addicted to heroin. That would be, addiction may be the same, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's like, but you learn. 
I'm speaking with Auntie Donahue. The book is called Nobody Cares. It's in bookstores right now and online, Amazon.ca, all that kind of stuff. You can find it wherever you buy fine and probably not so fine books, but I mean, this is a fine book. And who are we to say what's fine? Yeah. I certainly didn't do well in grade 12 English. <laughs> well, the thing that I love about you uh, is your take on pop culture, and you take pop culture seriously. So do so, you. Yeah, so do I. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, pop culture for me is so vitally important because it's our culture. It yes. is everything that we do. It is the little twist tie on a Wonder Bread bag. It is Mickey Mouse. It is everything that we come in contact every day is popular culture. 100%. And I think it's also like the way you can look at the climate in a really like, I mean, Bugs Bunny is so political. When you yeah. watch back and you're like, oh my God, that's all like Red Scare stuff. Yep. But like we we like to dismiss, I think, some people like to dismiss popular culture because it's not the upper echelons. But I mean, I was never really embraced by that world. So I'm, <laughs> I don't really care what they think. <laughs> but it's funny, you, you talk about, uh, you know, bands like One uh, One Dimension. No, what are they called? One Direction. One Direction. One Direction. I'm going to leave. This I know. is I'm over. Andre, that. cut I'm it. Sorry. We're done. Well, no, I gave their concert movie a bad review <gasps> on a television show. Please, please don't walk out in a huff. And uh, the letters that we got were hilarious and emails, but one person wrote in and said, there was a very rude young man on your television show today. Oh, well, you are a young man, (laughs) and I'm sure that was a rude review. (laughs) I have that Morgan Spurlock's documentary, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, This is us. I own it on DVD because I'm a big fan of One Direction. Mm -hmm. They are on hiatus. I'll talk about that on another day. <laughs> <laughs> but you take pop culture very seriously because do. it does it does comment. We just have about forty seconds here. We'll we'll get to this on the other side. But you talk about pop culture in a way that that uh, is lovely because you embrace it and yet look beyond it and 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 sort of look at what it says about us. I try. I think because. Um Pop culture was my link to the outside world when I was a kid. I didn't really fit in. So I was like, television, movies, yep. music. Yep. And I think, yeah. And I honestly think that's a pretty common thing. So why would you dismiss something that made you feel like you weren't alone? Riddle me that, <laughs> listeners. I act like this is a call-in show. I'm like, we'll take another caller. And for the last time. Yeah, it's uh, Angela from Toulouse calling in. What do you got to say, Angela? <laughs> Hit me. The book is called Nobody Cares. The author is Auntie Donahue. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about boy bands, girl bands, teen dramas, all that kind of stuff. Stay with us. The book is called Nobody Cares from ECW Press. The author is Auntie Donahue. It is a collection of essays uh, that are... Very specific in one way about your life and things that you've done, but I think that they are universal in the themes that they touch on. Amazing. And and that is, I think, what makes this book so interesting because while I was reading it, I am, you know, as I'm reading about you as a 27-year-old woman living in Toronto, I don't have a great deal of experience with that, <laughs> except that you were talking about battling alcohol and and the life that you were leading and that sort of thing. And that's where it becomes universal. And I think that, you know, a lot of the feelings and things that are in this book and expressed in this book so beautifully are things that we've all thought no matter our gender or age or whatever. I, well, thank you for that. I, I hope so. I think it's, you know, difficult because I don't know who writing that you begin. I think when you're writing a book, first of all, you begin as this pompous horrible person where you're like, I am writing a book. Yep. It is the Bible. It's very exciting. And you tell people, 
oh, I have to go home and work, work on my, my book. book. Yeah. Oh, my God. And by the end, you're just like, oh, my Lord. And then as that goes on, you're just destroyed by it more and more and more. And like you begin being like, well, the most important people in the world are going to read this book. It's going to be on all of the shelves. And then by the end, you're like, I don't even I, yeah. like I don't know where I am. The edits, they don't tell you about the edits. Oh, the edits, uh, the editing can be brutal. I just cried through the whole last bit. Not to my editors, but silently. Just being like, I don't want to do this anymore. No, the editing can be brutal. Um, I know uh, one of my books, the book on Ken Russell's movie, The Devils, Mm -hmm. which I spent two and a half years writing because it was a giant research project. I had to track down... Uh, actors and directors and cinematographers who were all in their 80s, right? The movie was made a, a million years ago, and it was tough to find. It just took forever. So I find them all, I do this thing up, and we cut that book by about half. And it was it was a grim process, but it turned out really well in the end. It was worth it. Right. The last round of edits were the start of this year, and a lot of stuff had been happening in my life at the time that we do not need to go into here. But it was like just an amalgamation where like if I'd come home and been like, your whole family's been wiped out. I'd be like, well, no, of course they have. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, this is where the month has been going. This yeah. is great. So I remember just being like, I don't you you start so self-important and excited and by the end you're like I like it that's yeah. all that matters now. Well, you know what? That is all that matters though. I, think I mean so. I, I think whenever you make something for public consumption mm-hmm. um, if you try and tailor it too much if you think too much about the people that are going to be consuming it I think that it can throw you off. I think that the, the stuff that works the stuff that is authentic stuff that that sounds like you there's a reason you got the book deal. Thank you. I the, Good. Tell my editors that. I hope they're listening. <laughs> um, yes. I think as soon as you like scrape the veneer off and it's just a person talking, it's a lot more like I'd rather hear a person talk than a guru. Yeah, I, and, don't, I and, don't like gurus. It, well, <laughs> <laughs> but it's tough to get to that point, though. Well, yeah, especially because when you think you're important, as going back to the beginning, is when you think you're important, you're just that's just it's over for you. It's time to go home. Well, I think also that that sense of self-importance though is a mask. So often, totally, of course, because yeah. you like you know you want to run into your high school nemesis at Loblaws <laughs> and be like, I'm writing a book, and they're like. Oh, that never happens. Usually you tell them, they're like, that's cool. Like, well, that isn't how I imagine that interaction to go. One of the things that always makes me laugh on Twitter when you do it is you write about your enemies and your nemesis. And it always makes me laugh. I hate so many people. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even like, and for some of them are just like, they, I've never met them. And I'm like, that is. you saw on the street. I hate that person. Um <laughs> Or there's like one person I might not be getting along with. And I'm like, they'll know. They don't know. But in my head, it's also like, I am the godfather. I love the self, the story I've created around myself in my head that I've never shared with anyone. But in my head, I'm like, I'm just Don Corleone. And everybody <laughs> needs to understand. My enemies will pay. Also, saying my enemies is amazing. It's amazingly it's funny so to me. It's fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. Let's like, I hope they're listening right now. And they're like, it's me. If you think it's you, it's not you. My enemies don't know. I'm stealth. I now I just sound delusional, but I'm also delusional. I think to write a book, you also have to be delusional. I think at a certain point, you have to be a little delusional. I mean, to write about yourself yes. is, is you have is, to be delusional, well, and you have to sort of let certain things go. I mean, yes. the, the you have to let and not in a in a bad way here, but you have to let a, a, some sense of your dignity go because in order for it to work. 
you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, especially the bad and the mm-hmm. ugly, because I think that is what I like reading about in people's yep. books. Because I'm like, well, you've obviously you've survived because I'm reading your book. Yeah, Cheryl Strayed is my fa- one of my favorite writers, and like Wild was that kind of like. Um, that was a very transforming book for me where I was like, wow, she's like painting herself in such a realistic light. I yeah. want the guts to do that. Carrie Fisher. Yeah, Carrie Fisher, Chelsea Handler. Yeah, yeah, like I think it's that is great. And those are why people read those books because it's like we're all awful. Like <laughs> we're messy, we're disgusting, we're terrible, we're wonderful, we're all of the things. Being a human is insane and like good. That means I don't want to be a robot. I don't even like them. I don't even want to drive a Tesla. I don't trust Elon <laughs> Musk and his robots. <laughs> <laughs> it was there anything here while you were going through that was not in the editing stage, but in the writing stage, where you said, ah, "I can't talk about that." Um, like that made it into the book. Yeah. Um, no, or, or not. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I don't really write about, and this is like in most of my work, is like I don't write about relationships right. and. Like, guys, but that's honestly because— Except Leonardo DiCaprio. My boyfriend of a million years, yes. But that's because I wish I could be like, well, because I just want to protect the legacy. I'm like, no, I literally have nothing. It's boring. It's like, (laughs) I think I even say it in there. I'm like, I'm a cis, white, hetero woman. Like, what what do I have to bring to the table at this point about love lives and stuff? Um, There's one on there. His real name is not Chad. Uh, I was wondering. I changed it. Yeah. And then— Does he know? No. We haven't talked in a long time. Um, and I do know the last time we ran into each other, it was at a stag and doe and we got into an argument Uh, and we're in like our late twenties. I was like, Oh my God, what is happening? So the moral of that story is change the name of people who are mean to you so that they can never say they're in your book. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I got written about in a book. Uh, a number of years ago by an ex-girlfriend. Uh, and, and no, it was fine. We oh. broke up amicably, learned okay. different countries, you know, just sort of things happened differently. Uh, but she wrote a book and and uh, she didn't use my name. She changed the name. Uh, but the description was so uncanny that there was there was no question. People were reading it, calling me going, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Was it good at least? Was it well written? It, it was. Yeah, it was. It was beautifully yeah. written and it was uh, mostly good. See, I also feel like any stories I have, that was the most exciting one. It happened like in high school. Everything else would be like, and it didn't work out. All right. (laughs) Like that's, I wish, I mean, maybe that is like, that's my reprieve. I'm allowed to have like a messy everything else life, but this part is like just boring and non exciting at all um, until Leo flies in. Um, yep. Then like whenever we get together, we are, we recreate Titanic <laughs> frame by frame. So that's exciting. I love that you didn't see Titanic straight away. I wasn't allowed. You're, you're old enough, I know. <laughs> I think, you know what I think it was? The nude drawing scene. Oh. Because that your got. your parents are religious, right? Well, they're or, Catholic. Yeah. But like, I really believed they didn't let me do a lot of things that I just had, I just assumed they wouldn't. Like, I was like, remember you didn't let me do this? And they're like, you never asked. <laughs> so I think I created a lot of unnecessary pain and hardship. But that, because it got blown up so much. Right. Um, and I was like 12 or something. My mom was like, we don't need you to see that. Well, it's interesting, though, because – and uh, maybe I've got the, the timing wrong on this, but you, you did see it when you were 13. Because I on turned VHS, 13, right? yeah. But it wasn't until three weeks after you turned 13. Isn't that what you say in the book? No, it was the week after. Oh, the week Because I turned 13 I August I would have thought 29th. that would have been the, third, the, you know, the, the 13th birthday. Well, present. it didn't come out on, D, on VHS till September 3rd or oh, September 2nd. I see. I see. So then that week – and I had to wait till they had choir practice because I knew I would only – 
I would just cry in front of the television. Like I still do when I watch Titanic. And I'm like, this is an event. I like got dressed up. (laughs) I like watched it. And then they came home and I was still like in the remnants of like having sobbed my face off. And my mom was like, did you like it? I'm like, it's the greatest movie I've ever seen. (laughs) And it's never changed. My opinion has never changed. That is, it's such an important movie. I feel bad that I'm now hijacking this interview with being like, and let me tell you about Titanic when I saw it the third time. <laughs> well, no, it, well, it's interesting though, because again, for for people growing up, movies are a connection yeah. that they make to a certain sort of place and time. And, and you can't underestimate the power of the art that you're watching to eventually have some interplay with the person you become. That's totally, yeah, that is 100% true. This summer, I went on a bit of a social sabbatical where I'm like, I want to hang out with anyone for a little while like I had gotten really sick and then um I was just really tired I'm like I want to prep for the book and feel healthy for all of this stuff so I hung out at my mom and dad's a lot and just you know ate a lot of avocados and I watched all the movies I loved as a teenager and it's you still get the same feelings of like hope that yeah, you yeah. like are very fleeting when you watch movies now and like the clothes and you remember where you were and then you insta story it and then everyone's like oh my god and then you have that sense of camaraderie all over again and you almost feel like it's grade eight and you're sitting <laughs> at the back of the room and there's like steve who you've loved forever and you're like look at me turn and look at me come on and then he does and you're like hi and he's like you're so weird so i feel like there's all of this yeah like movies have they can do i think with the ones you loved when you were a kid and when you were 13 i say i think especially 13 those are the ones that just like they have such an impact on who you become as a person. I think so too. They're bigger than life. They yeah. are. They they are often uh, your first real uh, introduction to a lot of ideas mm-hmm. and things that maybe you haven't thought of or seen before. They open your eyes if you haven't traveled and you're watching a movie that is set elsewhere. Sure. But they really do transport people to to other places, and that's ultimately why I think they're so important. I love movies, mm, not films. Yeah. Movies. <laughs> I like both. You're allowed. I, well, it, it's your and, job. You know what? I don't really differentiate. I mean, I think part of it, and and again, I grew up in a very small town in Nova Scotia, and I just went to whatever movie they could get. And sometimes we didn't get Saturday Night Fever for six months. So I might go see on Saturday night a Bruce Lee movie, and then the second feature was you know, Tartovsky's Stalker, a three and a half hour Russian science fiction film because Great. that's all they had. And and uh, so I just saw everything and I see everything on the same level. Tartovsky's Stalker and Bruce Lee movies, see, that's one why and the same. I, that's why I like the way you um, talk about movies because it's not that like looking down and being like, who would like this? You're good at that. Barry nope. Hertz is good at that too. He's yep. one of my editors. I'm like, I, so, I think that's why I like working with him so much because it's like you guys are in that camp where it's like, just because it isn't like film. <laughs> Although I will never forgive you for the One Direction. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, I. Well, you and that woman who co- accused me of being. It was me. Rude. I did. I, that was me. I did that. Uh, the book is called Nobody Cares. The author is Auntie Donahue. What fun. This is, this is I can't believe we're done. I was looking at your bolded questions there and I was like, did we miss anything? Are we they haven't fun? Talked to, we haven't used any of them. Oh my God. Is that bad? No, it's not. People it's listening better. are like, yes, that was bad. That was, <laughs> we wish well, she had well, listened more. Well, come back and okay. we'll do it another time. And we'll actually use the questions there. Oh, done. Amazing. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks for coming in. My thanks to you for listening and my thanks to Andre on the board.